0: I want to ask a question to begin. I want to ask you what's the oddest place you've managed to fall asleep? Just have a think. I'm not going to necessarily get people to call out, although that might be interesting. Um, but what's the oddest place you've managed to sleep in? A hammock? Anyone else? The top of Ben Nevis. The top oh. of Ben Nevis. Oh. Well, you should have near saved the top. It. Near the top. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyone uh, beat the top of Ben Nevis? Where? The French Ambassador's Back Garden. garden. Well, there's a whole load of stories that we're going to be having over coffee afterwards. Okay, we're going to stop now because people are going to get very distracted by some of these. Uh, If you want to know why Simon slept in the French Ambassador's Back Garden, please see him for coffee afterwards. Uh, We've got a story from Ben Nevis. Um, I tend to find that there are two main types of people in the world when it comes to sleep. Those who struggle to sleep. You can be as comfy as you like, as tired as you could possibly be, and yet you struggle to sleep. Then there are those really annoying people in life who sit down for what seems like a split second in possibly the most uncomfortable place ever imaginable, and they're gone, blissfully unaware of anything else that's happening. And it tends to fit into one of those two categories. I'm sure there's some in between, but on a whole, I see those too. My father is one of those latter people who can sit down. Uh, He's uh, particularly bad because it's not that he's just sat quietly. He's in the middle of a conversation, sat down, and he'll fall asleep. And uh, Laura will tell you, he snores. So uh, in the middle of a conversation, not only does he fall asleep in it, he then disrupts it with his snoring. Um, I personally have managed a few uh, interesting places. Um, I slept a couple of times in a car uh, because I locked myself out of a house. That was uh, uncomfortable. And I slept on the floor of a church because if you're in a youth group in a church and you didn't sleep on the floor, then did you even go to church youth group? So I slept on many churches floor all around the country. Um, Sun lounges by swimming pools, uh, which I do not recommend because it got very hot when I woke up. Um, And then finally for me, which is an odd one, but any time that I went to a sleepover at a friend's house, I ended up asleep in the bathroom. Uh, Not because of any issues that I have. I just have a really low trust level of my friendship group. And I decided that being between a locked door and them was the safest way to sleep. So I would find myself wrapped in towels, asleep on the bathroom floor. So I go back to that question, where's the oddest place for you that you have found yourself asleep? Where are those places that you have managed to drop off? It may not always be the easiest thing for me to fall asleep, but once I am asleep, I am asleep. I told a story a while ago here of a time when we were at Hill House. um, With my parents, there was a big thing going on, and the fire alarm went off. And so my parents made sure that my friend who was with us was awake, and they took him to the fire assembly point, uh, and they trusted it was a false alarm, so they left me asleep because the alarm didn't wake me. They've always told me that was the reason. Another occasion, I went away with our church when we were over in Western, and we stayed in a huge marquee because we decided that individual tents were too much hard work, so we just put big marquees up. Um, I awoke in the morning after a fairly good night's sleep to find that half the marquee was empty, uh, and the other half was flooded. And what had happened is, during the night, the weather had got so bad that most people had gone back to their cars to sleep because of the thunderstorm, and the other half, the side had blown off the tent, and water had just flooded in. So I awoke inches from uh, all of my stuff being soaked, but blissfully unaware that any of this drama had unfolded in the night. Which raises an interesting question for us, because sleep is lovely. Sleep is something that we all need. I'm sure it's something that we all cherish. But when drama breaks out, when something significant happens, sleep is the last place we want to be. When there is a fire alarm, sleeping through it is not good. When there is a storm around you, it's not always the best thing to be asleep in that unresponsive, unaware, disengaged state where you have no idea what's happening around you. And yet that is where we find Jesus today. I'm going to ask Helen to come, and she's just going to give us our reading from this morning as we look at this idea of sleep.
1: This morning is taken from Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 to 41. Jesus calms the storm. That day when evening came he said to his disciples let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. is this. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Amen. Thanks.
0: I want to look at a few of the things that are going on in that passage. I think there's a huge amount we can draw out of it. I just want to touch on a couple of them, and I think it's uh, incredibly applicable to our lives. I think when we look at it, we can see way more in our lives than maybe we originally see as we listen to the text, because oftentimes the drama and the difficulties in our life don't look like a storm in the middle of a lake, in a fishing boat. But what we see here is actually a wonderful example of how life can play out. So I want to touch on two things to begin with. That first idea, I don't know how many of you hear it when the passage is read, but there are multiple boats on the lake I think sometimes we disengage with that fact. We just assume that there is a boat on the lake in a storm. There are multiple boats on the lake. And yet when a storm storm strikes, very quickly we can feel alone. When difficulties come in our lives, we can begin to feel very isolated. We begin to feel like there's no one around us. We begin to sometimes maybe push people away because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed. The disciples in that moment find themselves in the middle of a lake. We don't hear anything else of the other boats. They have instantly just narrowed their view into what's directly in front of them. We touched on it last week. The woman at the well was isolated. She was alone. She was an outcast. Society had set her up in a way that they pictured her and they left her be. Maybe for some of us, the issues and the struggles that we have have created that void. We don't feel like people will accept us anymore. So in all of the tension, all of the drama, all of the problems that we've got going on, we find ourselves alone, isolated, feeling cut off. And then a second thing happens. And it's a personal thing. I've shared it with you guys before. But for me, worries always seem worse at night. I said for a long time, I've got no shame in it. I uh, disliked the dark as a child, and I am still less keen on it now. I'm just not a fan of the dark. Now, we don't read necessarily that they were at night. But when storms come in, when those rain clouds came over, I am positive there was a darkness over the lake. And it leaves us to create things in our mind when it gets dark, when we feel alone. We start to elaborate the stories in our head of what's going on. We can make things look worse than they are. I shared this at the Ladies' Fellowship once as a kid. And like I said, I didn't like the nighttime, And uh, in the process of getting ready for bed, I pushed uh, on my ribs and uh, it clicked. And uh, being, uh, it, being at night... Uh, not particularly enjoying that. I assumed that I had uh, cracked my ribs, uh, multiple ribs, despite it being one noise, uh, and therefore decided I wouldn't sleep all night because if I'd punctured my lung, I needed to know, so that I could raise the alarm. So I decided I wouldn't sleep because it was the best thing to do. My imagination would run wild at night. I don't know how many. Blah. I don't know how many of you can relate to that idea that idea that sometimes when the lights go off in our rooms, shadows become terrible monsters. I think as we grow up, it becomes less about the shadows and more about the realities that we face. But we can allow them to get worse. We allow them to play on our minds when we can't do anything about it. In that storm, that light seems to fade. That darkness seems to overcome us. And we're left in that situation, as the disciples were, where the storm appears too big for us. I don't know how many of you find it in your own lives when you face things and you are aware that you are not going to be able to get through this. It feels like it's going to overwhelm us, like the water is going to break the edge, like we are going to go down. The disciples, us can be left with that question, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in the midst of this storm? Why do I feel abandoned? I think for myself, I'll admit it from the front, there are things in my life that I know are too big for me. I'm okay with that. They overwhelm me. They're too much for me to deal with. And there are still definitely times when I question what Jesus is up to. This story, I find, is a huge, huge comfort in that, because as we read this story, what we remember is that these are his disciples. These guys are significant. They have given up everything to follow him. Mark one sixteen reads like this. Sorry, Mark one verse sixteen reads like this: As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. They left their father, Zebedee, in a boat with the hired men and followed him. They had given up everything to follow Jesus, quite literally everything. Walked away from family, from their jobs, from the security, everything to go after him. And right now, in the middle of this storm, they are left asking this question. Jesus, where are you? So I hope that's a huge relief to you because if the disciples who were physically with Jesus and had given up so much to follow him had to ask that question, then it's okay for us to do that. Please feel relieved to know that it is not a bad thing to wonder sometimes what Jesus is up to because the disciples did it and it's way more about how we respond to that that becomes important than that worry and that concern that can rise up in us. I love the part of this story that we move into because we've got this wonderful picture of this storm brewing over the lake. We've got the disciples concerned, and we read that Jesus is asleep in the stern on a cushion. I love the fact that we just get this wonderful picture of where Jesus is. He is below, asleep. Possibly unaware of the storm that's raging, quite possibly well aware of the storm that's raging. A furious storm came up. Waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. You can look at that one of two ways. There is a wonderful piece to that truth. I wonder how many of us have been in situations in life where we feel like actually that reflects a Jesus that doesn't care. Jesus who's not interested in my day-to-day. He's not, he's not bothered if I can't make the bills. Jesus isn't worried about me getting that job. He's just asleep, disengaged. All of this is raging on around me. This reality of my life is here, but there seems to be a real lack of presence from Jesus. I'm sure some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have had that thought. We begin to feel like he doesn't care. And then we read this amazing moment. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I want to touch on that point very deliberately. They wake him and ask, How far into a drama do you need to be before you get Jesus involved? How far into a situation do you get where you start to go, you know what, maybe I'm not going to be able to deal with this, God, so I'm going to need you to step up to the plate a little bit here. Is it that first moment? Is it that first point of tension? Is it when we've tried two or three things and now we're really beginning to struggle, so maybe prayer is a good thing to turn to? I wonder how many of us pray quicker for lost keys and car parking spaces than we do for some of the circumstances that we face in our lives. Because what we see here is the disciples acting. The disciples don't just stand in the boat going, oh my gosh, this is awful, where is Jesus? No, they move. They are moved to action by what's going in front of them and the response that they show is to go and call on Jesus. Jesus. I wonder how many of us, if we look back on situations where we felt abandoned, realize we never even began to get Jesus involved. Those prayers didn't come. We got so bogged down, so isolated, it got so dark that actually we just found ourselves more and more isolated, not just from people, but from God himself. The disciples give us a wonderful, wonderful example Psalm 50, 15 says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Call on me. I am here to be a part of what's going on. And yet so often we get so caught up in the situation that we bench Jesus because, you know what, I can deal with this, I can do this. I should be strong enough to cope with this. And yet we see time and time again, actually, we need to call on him need to lean into him. I would suggest the importance isn't just to learn to rely on Jesus in the drama, it's to engage him in your whole life. The disciples did life with Jesus. This is just an example of one of those moments where everything hit hard and so they called out to him in a different way. And then we see why. Then we see why in our lives, no matter how big the drama is, no matter how difficult the situation is, why is it worthwhile calling out to Jesus? Why is it something that our faith is built upon? Why do we trust that he is going to be there? We read three words in verse 39. They simply read, he got up. The disciples cry out to Jesus, there is a storm. I imagine I'm not great on boats, they make me feel sick, but I imagine when there is a storm, the boat is doing a whole lot of moving and it wouldn't have been easy for them to get down to him. You would have heard the waves, the thunder, the lightning, the whole shebang, everything is going off and they're like, Jesus, do you not care? And we read these three simple words. He got up. When I wake up, when Evie cries, It is not as graceful as he got up. It's something of throwing myself out of the bed and rushing to her room. There is a panic within me because I have no idea what's going on. If you wake to a fire alarm, I'm almost positive that you jump out of bed. We expect in this moment, with everything that's going on, to find Jesus suddenly doing something incredibly quickly, responding as if the situation is bigger than him. But instead what we see is a calm, calculated response. At no stage is Jesus worried. That should fill us with an enormous amount of comfort. No matter what the disciples were bringing to the table, Jesus was in control of it already. Jesus was already comfortable that the situation was in hand. In our lives, when we go to Jesus in prayer, are we expecting him to be surprised? Are we kind of pleading with him, could you do a little bit more than you normally would do because this is a bit of a worse situation? Or are we trusting at all times that God has got it in hand? He got up, suggests to me, that Jesus had it. Jesus got it in hand. That cool, calm confidence fills me with a peace in amongst the storm. The storm is still present, the storm is still raging, and yet something of Jesus' presence brings a peace to the situation within. And then we read this rebuking the winds and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. be quiet, be still. The magnitude of that is found in the realization the disciples were fishermen. It was their profession. These guys did the lake. They knew the lake. They knew the wind patterns. They knew how to fish. They knew how to drive a boat or whatever you do when you make boats move. They did that. That was their job. So for them to be concerned in a storm suggests that it was big because they would have ridden out storms before. So this situation is big. This is beyond their comfort zone as people who spent their lives on the water. So when Jesus says to it, still, be quiet, he is not just saying that on the off chance that the breeze is going to die down and actually maybe you know he'll get away with one. He is speaking into a situation bigger than the disciples can deal with, and it listens. Jesus speaks into a situation bigger than professional fishermen on a lake can cope with which suggests to me that in our lives, in our situations, he's got the capacity to speak into them. Nothing is too big for him. Nothing's going to catch him off guard. His authority goes beyond just the simple understanding we have. And then these disciples, these guys that had given up everything to follow him, had spent time with him, had seen some of the things that he could do, in this moment, in the magnitude of this storm, they are left asking this question, who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. You know what? This isn't in my notes, but I pray this for us, that we will still have moments in our faith where we are left in awe and wonder of what Jesus can do. Because that's an amazing moment right there. The disciples are left in awe and wonder. There is a level of fear in it because suddenly the magnitude of Jesus is revealed to them from the depth of their despair. In a moment that could have gone very pear-shaped, instead they just saw more of who Jesus was. I pray we never lose those moments. We never get so comfortable with our lives and the way Jesus works in them that we just lose that awe. That wonder, that moment where we just question, oh, just God, wow. Just you are, wow. In the middle of the storm, the disciples cried out to him. With a cool, calm, calculated response, Jesus speaks peace. The disciples had a physical Jesus. We talked about this last week with the capacity they had to miss things. But they had a physical Jesus. We have the Spirit. So I wonder in the middle of your storm, are you willing to cry out? Are you willing to take that step to admit that you're struggling? Are you going to allow your faith to be awakened and let His power be at work in your lives? Are you going to find yourself in situations where you end up with that prayer, that cry, that need for Jesus to come through, and he does, and you are just left in awe and wonder? Because that's what we see here. As I conclude, I feel like this is a very good example for us of our lives. I'm sure many of us have done it. I'm sure it's not the first time people have heard it. But what we tend to do in church is we build a Jesus that we can understand. And it doesn't matter how big we make him, he is a Jesus that we can understand, and he fits into this box for us, and he does what we need him to do, and he'll come out when we need him to come out, and when I want to do some stuff I'm less pleased with, I'll just tuck him away again, and that's the Jesus that we can sometimes serve. So I want to ask you the question, and I think it's the question the disciples discovered very quickly, are you willing to let Jesus be bigger than the picture you've painted of him? Are you willing to let Jesus be bigger than your understanding of him currently is? Because that's the kind of Jesus that can step into the middle of the storms and say, you know what, quiet. Quiet. And we are left in awe and wonder of just what could life look like if we journey daily with him. It's one of those funny things. I'm sure many of you have had this conversation People assume our faith is about rules and regulations. Any of you who have tried to work with uh, younger people will know this to be very true. As far as they're concerned, Christianity is just a huge rule book. And that's all we're about. Rules and regulations, a crutch for the weak. I tend to find the more that I spend time in the Bible, the more that I have the privilege of talking to people, that actually, you know what, my faith is about a massive, massive rescue. My faith is about a huge rescue story because God isn't looking to come and tell everyone off. He's not coming to tell everyone all the things they've done wrong. Like we see with the disciples in the storm that they faced, we have a God who is there to come and save us. A God who's willing to make the move towards us, to be in our lives, be in those situations. A God who wants to do life in the good times and the bad times. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You know what? That's my faith. That's my Jesus. He is beyond my understanding. To the point where the winds and the waves obey him. That's my saviour. And he is amazing. And I love him. And I love what he does in my life. And yet even in all of that truth, there are situations where I begin to worry that he is not enough. So I pray for all of us that we would lean on this story as an example of no matter how bad it gets even in maybe the safest space we have, the places that we're in the most control of right now, when they go to pot, when they begin to break down, may we know in that place a Jesus who is bigger than the picture that we've drawn, a Jesus who wants to bring rescue. We touched on it last week. We touch on it again this week. We read it in the gospel stories of hope. They are stories of hope. They are stories of restoration. Time and time again we see it. Hope, restoration. For us, for those who still don't know Jesus, that's the truth of my faith. A God who loves us, who sent Jesus to die for us. Hope and restoration.